everybody, this is Brett. And I'm Christian. And you're listening to the Gilded Films Podcast. A year in review, 1981. everybody and welcome back this is our second episode this is dealing with the year that was 1981 if you have been listening we already talked about the academy awards for that year the winner was chariots of fire the esteemed illustrious running movie that everybody seemed to love including <laughs> the three of us oh how we loved it so much ha, oh, ha. just brett <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so we all decided in that episode that it probably should not have won. What should have won? Well, take a listen to the damn episode. Uh, so in this one, like we said, we're going to be covering the years 1981. We have six films to get through and some honorable mentions. Zay is back with us. Hello. Hi. And Zay is going to do something at the end of this that has never been seen by man, woman, or child. It's going to be interesting. That I kind of wanted to do for 1985, but then I didn't. But now I'm doing it for 1981, which so, I think is more fitting. But you'll see what I mean. Yes, we will. Or here, you'll hear. It, it sounds interesting. It sounds like a a feat. Yes, it will. Not be like for sure. feet like Quentin Tarantino feet. <laughs> oh God. Anyway, so our first film that we have up for 1981 to get through it is uh, going to be something that. Which one have you picked, actually? Which one's first? Zay. I oh, this is, this is for Zay. All right. So this is Zay's first pick. Go ahead. Uh, the first pick that I picked was An American Werewolf in London, 1981, directed by John Landis. And it is a seminal film in horror, like special effects and makeup. Um, basically, two American boys go to jolly old London. And they end up at a tavern and they're like, well, the people here are awful fucking weird, but that's fine. And they go out, they get attacked by some creature. They don't know what it is. Our main character, he wakes up in a hospital three weeks later and he's like, what the fuck happened? Everyone's like, I don't know. And then his friend shows up as a ghost and he's like, bruh, you're a werewolf. And he's like, I can't be a werewolf. You're just a figment of my imagination. And then he rooms with this girl and they get a little steamy and it's kind of hot. And then he turns into, and then he's like, oh shit, maybe I am a werewolf. And that's even kind of hotter, but we're going to get into that later. Um, and then it, he keeps having these nightmare situations where he keeps seeing dead people and the dead people's uh, makeup and shit is so fucking cool. And he's just like, I don't know what the fuck I'm going to do. And the people are like, and I'm not going to spoil any of the ending for you, but it's just a really fucking good werewolf flick. Like, as I love werewolves. They're one of my favorite monsters. And as far as werewolf movies go, wow. This is one of the top notch. And I forgot how fucking good it is, even though Brett hated it. <laughs> okay, we're going to go in first, so then we can <laughs> Brett's opinion. Who like Chariots of Fire more than this movie, I think. You know what? how it goes so, 
I'm so, gonna bully you. <laughs> Take away your film card. <laughs> so between Brad and another one of our uh, listeners in this, who are both to me is all right. And then I watched it thinking, maybe that first time I didn't really like it. But then I watched it and I really liked it. So everybody else is wrong. If you give this thing other than like less than a four, you're wrong. Sue me. It's scary. <laughs> it's funny, scary. I mean, I don't think John Landis intended it for it to be funny, but what it has comedic moments. I think he did. It has a lot of humor in it. It does. But like, and then the makeup is like totally amazing, which again, we'll probably get to after, you know, a little bit, because uh, it's very important makeup in terms of like Academy Award stuff. And just, it's awesome. But no, yeah, it's one of the best werewolf movies. I love the original like Wolfman movie. This is like the werewolf where we're able to show this transformation in like the most graphic form possible. So let's do it. Welcome to the 80s. But yes. Okay. Now let's hear from Brett. You're wrong. I was gonna say I like this movie, but (laughs) if I'm wrong, fine, whatever. No, Uh, I liked it. I I just I really liked the scenes, like the transformation, and when he actually is the werewolf, and the more like horror action sequences of it, and the scenes with Griffin Dunn, you know, in ghostly mutilated form, because the makeup is, as you said, it's amazing. Like I'm really glad that they finally made a permanent makeup category for this um but yeah the transformation scene is great it's like everything that happens in between there that i think is like fine but not quite as interesting to me and so like in the scenes where he's not a werewolf and he's just his normal self i don't particularly like him so i'm just like waiting for him to become a werewolf again or something like that to happen again so i don't know maybe that's part of it too that i just didn't really like david not in a whole lot I, part of me is like, I wish it, Griffin Dunn had been the one that was the main character because I like him a lot more, but then also I really like him as his character, so I don't know. But yeah, I really like the makeup, and I thought the ending was a little bit sudden from the theater on theater scene on, but aside from that, it is a good movie. It is one that I think I could watch a number of times, like every few Octobers for Halloween or something, just because... It is fun. It's a short movie, um, and it is it does have that humor in it as well. So, I think with this and the Evil Dead, I think this is like a good like starting point for horror to like be horrific, but also have like a dark humor to it. Mm-hmm. I think those two, these two movies are the ones that really set that off. Yeah, and I watched Evil Dead finally and loved that one. So, Fine. there you go. You're allowed. You're allowed in the door. But we're still gonna like give you like ugly stares. <laughs> That's fair. I'll take it. Um. Yeah. But uh, you mentioned Griffin Dunn. Like, I liked how more decrepit and like decaying you see him each time he appears. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a really nice touch because he could easily just been like a ghost who looks the same each time. But I like the creative like oh no he's been dead longer so he looks more rotted yeah it's also really good sound in this too like the beginning the sound of the werewolf is actually like pretty frightening and caught me by surprise and the score is like kind of in your face and good too so that helps okay so i'm gonna earn us that explicit marking now would y'all fuck a werewolf (laughs) (laughs) 
Because I'm saying yes right now. <laughs> the plot out of Harry Potter. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It kind of depends on the werewolf, I guess. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> And this is when Christian learns more things about us than he ever thought. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> but yeah, I enjoyed it. The tube station scene is really, really good too. Or he's chasing the guy in the tube station. Love mm-hmm. that. I like the whole ending scene. I mean, I, it starts when he's in the, the porno theater. And he's like, you know, you got to die. And he's just like sitting there. And then all of a sudden he's like, oh, I'm changing. And then everybody's running out and they're like, there's a madman in there. And the whole like of London is freaking on the streets. Did I say freaking? Excuse me. It's fucking on the streets. <laughs> <laughs> and like, then suddenly you have like a wolf man running around and everybody's screaming. And then there's a the hilarious scene where he will run into one car and that car impacts like drivers getting hit and and i'm like laughing and people are dying i love when the guy flies out the bus window and gets yes. like, <laughs> like that's a, it's that's the dark humor of it all like that scene especially yeah i think it combines like all the things i love in a good horror movie with like good special effects nice dark humor and just an overall horny cloud over it <laughs> like i think that's like this and the fly would be a perfect double feature. Yeah, because even their romance like has that comedic aspect to it too. Because like their only like real relationship is like him saying all this weird shit to her. Like I just saw my friend and he's a ghost. <laughs> okay, and she's like, so do you want to come stay with me? <laughs> so, <laughs> so even I, that is funny. And I also like that there's like a lot of male nudity in this film. Which you don't get, you don't get in like '80s horror a lot, especially with all the ones I saw for this year. It's very, it's it's mostly just women. So to see, yeah, it was a nice balance. I want if you're gonna have nudity in the film, I want balance. Yeah, there's a lot of talk about circumcisions in this. (laughs) Of course. All right, so some fun facts. Not like you already <laughs> heard any. <laughs> um, it won one Oscar, like we said, for Best Makeup, which came as a decision for the year 1981 after many found the makeup of 1980's The Elephant Man deserved some sort of Oscar, as many films did. I don't know why it took them so fucking long to do this. It, they also, this was, this is the year they also decided Planet of the Apes got an honorary one, didn't they? Since they gave... No, they, that, that got an honorary one in like '68. Yeah. Did they? I thought it, I thought they waited. So there was only two movies before this that got honorary wins, and then when the Elephant Man didn't get anything, they're like, you know what? Let's just make the damn category. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, the box office thirty point six million dollars. Um, many people thought this was going to be a comedy because it was advertised as from the director of Animal House. What a terrible movie. Um, that's a different podcast. Uh, Miss Piggy and Kermit the Frog are credited because the Muppet Show episode scene was footage not shown in the United States. Uh, Michael Jackson was inspired by this film for everything in the Thriller music video, right down to Landis directing and Rick Baker's makeup. Um, and shot in sequence as to accommodate Baker's pre- preparation of the makeup. Interesting. And then a final 
Wild if true, this is the first movie to use the now widely used medicine cabinet jump scare. <laughs> I don't know. When I saw that, I was like, huh, that's wild if true. <laughs> medicine cabinet jump scare. I mean, okay, I hope the listeners understand what the medicine cabinet jump scare is. Yeah, when you close the window and there's some, no, no, yeah. the, the mirror, not yeah. the window, and there's someone behind you. That is weird. I mean, I, I don't think I could think of one before that. Interesting. There you go. Sure. I'm also I have a shit memory, so <laughs> so yeah. Very nice. American Werewolf in London. Check it out. Good horror. The transformation scene is like amazing though. True. Werewolf movies, like that's like there's the standard. I think it did make up for a very large like jump in werewolf popularity for the 80s. And I I don't think any other of them have come close to it since. Mm-hmm. There's another one from this year I'll talk about later that I like, though. Very nice. I'm just wondering if this is directly... No. Okay, I was like, did this directly inspire that Werewolf of London song? No, no, no. That came out much earlier. Well, they damn, they should have used it, though. Unless they did, and I just totally forgot. Uh, Okay. (laughs) I did see that all the songs in the movie do mention the moon. So that's kind of interesting. That's the one weird thing about this movie before we wrap it up, that the ending comes so abruptly in terms of when the credits start rolling. Yeah. Credits have such like a fun little bop. It's not like a horrific like, it's like, it's like, oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Christian, are you ready to bring us on to our next movie? Indeed. So the next film we have is Arthur, directed by Steve Gordon. It stars Dudley Moore as Arthur Bach. He is sort of a rich, drunken playboy. Um, He really has nothing going for him, except for his father wants him to get married. And then he'll sort of stay in the family, keep the inheritance. His really only friend is his butler, Hobson, who's played by John Gilgood in this. Hobson sort of keeps him level-headed and sober for the time that they're together um because again arthur's a drunk and when i say he's a drunk he's a drunk he then meets linda played by the amazing liza minnelli and sort of instantly falls for her and even though she's a common folk lives you know in a townhouse with her dad he starts again to fall for her even though he's engaged and it's just a series of mishaps for him and it's a really good, I don't know, it's a really good friendship movie, I would say, because the relationship between Hobson and Arthur is much more than just a butler thing. There's definitely a friendship there. Like I said, Gilgood, his character, Hobson keeps Arthur very level-headed, sober. I did not notice until I watched this, because I've seen this many times, that anytime Arthur is with Hobson, he is sober. Anytime without him, he's drunk as hell. But yeah, and this is a comedy, by the way. I assume people would have understood that. <laughs> But very fun movie. I really loved it. Um, that's why I wanted everybody to watch it. I, I'm assuming Zay has seen it before, but Brett, you haven't seen anything, so. Yeah. I did see it before. Um, I don't remember why. Oh, because it was on um, R.I.P. Filmstruck. They had Eliza Minnelli yeah. um, uh, showcase, and it was on there, and I was like, I might as well see this. Um, anyway. Uh, yes, this is my second time seeing it, and I liked it the first time I saw it. I liked it a little more this time. Um, my 
biggest issue with the movie is fucking Arthur. I don't like Arthur. Um, I guess you're not supposed to like him, but I just, I can't get through it because most of the, the comedy comes from aspects of him I don't like. Um, however, um, Liza Minnelli's character and Hobbs, I love them. This has such a good supporting cast that really brings the movie together for me that I just love the fuck out of. And as much as I don't like the hum- like the negative aspects of Arthur through that humor, I do love the script. And the script is very like wry and funny and so fucking sarcastic. I love the sarcasm in this movie because I truly don't think a lot of scripts get sarcasm right. Like they try too hard, but this is like a very natural sarcastic, sarcastic nature throughout the film that I think works so well, especially whenever Hobbes is just like reading Arthur and just like, I'll alert the media. Perfect. Mm. Yeah, I agree. When the beginning, when this movie started and like Arthur is laughing like nonstop, it kind of reminded me of like how I felt about the beginning of um, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, like, oh my gosh, is this character going to annoy me the whole time? But no, over time they grow a little bit and they grow on me. And so I agree, like, I didn't particularly like Arthur, but like you said, Zay, like when John Gilgood comes on as Hobson, he is immediately likable with his sarcasm and his overall manner and how he interacts with Arthur. Just a really awesome character, really lovable character um, who it was really easy to get attached to, especially as the film goes on and he undergoes his own kind of narrative. And same goes for Liza Minnelli in this role too. I mean, as soon as she's on screen, same thing with her. Instantly likable character, a lot of charisma, and I enjoyed following her throughout the film as well. And wasn't this your first Liza movie? It was, believe it or not. That's, I think. Bad. Go watch Cabaret. What's your problem? I do have Cabaret on deck because we will be talking about it for 1972 soon. So. Okay, good. Yeah. But no, I really liked her in this movie too. And that's, that, I think that's the biggest thing. Like the plot itself I thought was okay, but the dialogue was so good and it's so funny. And Zay, you mentioned the sarcasm. I thought it did really well with that too. And so it was really interesting to see how this like may have inspired some other films about like delinquent man child characters. Like I thought about like Adam Sandler and Billy Madison and I'm like, he had to have watched this movie and just drawn inspiration directly from it. And so. Or the remake. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Or the remake. Oof. Um, Which I had also seen. Yeah, I have not. I don't have much desire to. Cause, oh, don't. Don't, 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 don't. <laughs> yeah. Russell Brand. But, uh... <laughs> I don't know when that was the thing. Yeah. <laughs> we tried to make Russell Brand a leading man. <laughs> but no, it's good. Um, I enjoyed it. I thought, found it pretty enjoyable throughout and funny. And like I said, John Gilgood really loved that Best Supporting Actor win that he got for this. I think it's really mm-hmm. well-deserved. I also think Niles from The Nanny got a lot of inspiration from her. Oh my gosh. I can see that. Interesting. John Gilgood has a lot of good line deliveries in this. Mm -hmm. I mean, my favorite and the most famous of them is like, I'm going to take a bath today. I'll alert the media, sir. (laughs) Like, that's hilarious. Christian, have you seen the sequel? Yes. You know what? It's not that bad. 
they pretty much the sequel is that they lose the money because the woman he was going to marry like takes her revenge or whatever so mm. they have to go move into like an apartment in brooklyn or whatever but it's not that bad so is it like a fish out of water kind of movie what do you mean like they're not they have the like arthur has to figure out how to live like a poor person pretty much but i mean he has linda with him yeah and they have a baby coming up oh god oh boy. and it's called it's called arthur two on the rocks because like you know the drink <laughs> oh god um, so this won two Academy Awards for Best Supporting Actor for John Gilgood, bravo, and Best Original Song for what I consider a banger and on really good one it's of good. the best. One of the best. If you would take out all the Disney songs, because there's a shit ton of Disney songs that have won this award, and put like regular songs, this is one of the highest ones for me. But it's Arthur's theme, the best that you can do. Um, Interesting story about that briefly. Peter Allen is one of the winners of that. He was married to Liza. He's Australian. He's gay. Um, but he only wrote, I think, When You Get Caught Between the Moon and New York City. Just that line. And they're like, co-credit writer. And that's how he won his Oscar. Okay, but that nice. was deserved. That's a good line. That's the line everyone remembers. Right? <laughs> True. Um, so this made $95.5 million, so it was a success. Oh, it was also nominated for actor for Dudley Moore and the screenplay. Um, Dudley Moore was notorious for cracking up the crew at points, numerous points during this, so a lot of takes were having to be taken. And this is the only theatrical film of Steve Gordon, the director, because he died the following year. Uh, AFI's 100 Years, 100 Laughs, number 53, and the uh, 100 Years, 100 Songs, number 79 for Arthur's theme, Best That You Can Do. That's also a weird list if you ever look at it, because it also just like use of songs in movies. It's not just original songs. Yeah. Interesting. But that song is, it's so good. That's good. It is really and good. And I guess that like, I've read that it wasn't the front runner song. Interesting. Endless Love was the front runner. Song. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then you have like that. It's such a good, I mean, like, let's everybody, when you get caught between the moon and New York City. I also immediately thought of um, Oliver and Company, where they tried to have their own, like, of that song at the beginning of their film. You remember that one? I haven't seen it forever. Oh, it sounds almost the same. Interesting. Look, any movie in New York City in the 80s had to have a song about the moon, okay? And New York. <laughs> and New York, yes. <laughs> yes, that is Arthur. Perfect. Awesome. So, Christian, you actually have our next film as well, our number three movie. Would you oh, like to introduce mm -hmm. this one? So, there are sequels, such as The Godfather Part Two, Star Trek, The Wrath of Khan, The Empire Strikes Back, and then there are great sequels and that is this one and brett's already giving me the look it is the great muppet caper directed by jim henson it is about everybody's favorite muppets in this case kermit fozzy and the great gonzo travel to jolly old england we're back to england again there's a lot of british stuff happening i noticed <laughs> um so they're journalists and they're just going to cover lady holiday and her jewels being stolen that was like right at the beginning of this movie and they run along to miss piggy but i mean it's a movie so they don't really know it's miss piggy uh kermit thinks that that's lady holiday and he's going to interview her there's a whole issue with the fabulous baseball diamond 
and what Charles Grodin, is that how you say his name? It's something like that, whatever, Charles yeah. Grodin. Um, he is Lady Holiday's brother who is kind of poor and a deadbeat and wants to steal the fabulous baseball diamond and the Muppets get in on this crime and they're gonna stop it because Miss Piggy is framed for a crime she did not commit. She's framed for stealing the diamonds of Lady Holiday. There's a lot of diamonds in this movie. Um, and it's, great fun. it's a great one. It's hilarious. It definitely is one of those movies that like, they realize they're in a movie and they're gonna make you know that. The songs are great. The acting is great from the Muppets. Zay and I loved it. Brett is something else. Wrong. Wrong. Thank you. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. I've always loved The Great Muppet Caper. I think it is one of the best sequels. And it is the, for me, other than A Muppet Christmas Carol, it's like one of the best Muppet films that has ever been made. And it's coming off the year uh, after the Muppet Show actually ended because Jim Henson had a lot more ideas. He was like at its prime with the Muppet Show and he was like, you know what, I wanna make some good movies. So he made this, then The Dark Crystal, and then Labyrinth, of course. And then he died. Not because of the movies or anything, but <laughs> he got sick. But yes, um, that's a great Muppet caper. Great fun. Who, do you want, who wants to start? <laughs> I'll start. Oh boy. Yeah, I, I didn't really grow up with the Muppets. Um, I had seen, like, I watched Muppet movie when I was younger and that was like basically my only real exposure. And so I don't know, I guess for me, it was just like compared to that and compared to the Muppet Christmas Carol, this just wasn't quite on the same level for me. I think it's just that some scenes I felt or sequences went on a little longer than they should have. Um, like I was just ready, like, okay, what's next? Like, let's move on from here. But one scene, like the whole ballroom scene. Although I love the first time it happens, other than that, I'm like, all right, let's get to the point. And I don't know. I just I don't know. A lot of scenes just weren't terribly memorable for me. I don't know. But I did like the song. It's just in. Brad is no longer a part of the Gilded Films podcast. <laughs> Hostile take over here. This is funny, though, because Christian didn't even originally pick this film for us to review. So I'm a little interested. It's a little interesting that this is the one I'm so much in trouble for. But <laughs> um, so, yeah, we weren't even going to originally talk about this one. But um, I don't know. I like Kermit and Miss Piggy as always. I think there are lines of dialogue every now and then that are super funny. Like when he's talking about how he's doing a photographic essay on kneecaps. <laughs> That just had me rolling. Um, that was great. I also really loved the scene with the guy on the bench and the meta nature of the movie and like how Kermit is like, no, that is not what's going on at all. That was like completely off. We're trying to make a movie here. So, yeah, here. <laughs> the but, guy, as if he, <laughs> I'm sure he would love you just referring to him as the guy. <laughs> but no, I. I say yeah. I actually didn't know who he was either. No, I don't know who he is. I mean, he's, he's like a famous British actor. That's it. That's what I got. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have no idea who he is. That cameo definitely aged well. <laughs> Hold on, let me look. Cameo guest. Here we go. Mm, British gentleman by pond is his credited name. Robert Morley was an English actor who was usually cast as a pompous English gentleman representing the establishment. Okay. Interesting. 
interesting. I guess that was the other thing too. I didn't get enough London out of this. Like, I don't know, like London is like my favorite city in the world and it didn't capture it as well as I had hoped it would. Was that your problem with American Werewolf in London too? Wow. Uh, to a degree, maybe a little bit. But... Oh my. So we found out today that Brett is an Anglophile and that's why he hates <laughs> American movies set in Britain. <laughs> we, we cracked the code, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Don't you like though how this movie understood it was a movie? Yeah, no, I, like I said, I like the meta, you know, yeah. self-reflexive nature of it. I like that. And that was clear from the beginning. Like in like, the beginning, because they're looking at the credits and they're like reading and it's like, wait till you see the end credits. Of the... <laughs> yeah, no, and that's that was the thing too. Like that, at the when I first started watching this movie, like that scene alone was like, oh my God, this is going to be great. See, and okay. so now I'm going to talk about the movie. Yeah, um, I think this comes in a great trilogy of films of the Muppet movie. The Great Muppet Caper and Muppets Take Manhattan, and I think Muppets Take Manhattan really uses the uh, the meta narrative. Like, to, I think it's like those three are like the meta Muppet movies because they all like are aware that they're movies, and then they like kind of try to twist your mind and to be like, okay, are they playing themselves or are they playing their characters? Yeah. Um, especially in Muppets Take Manhattan. Um, and I think I've always liked that aspect of the Muppets and like other things like Looney Tunes and shit. Cause you're like, are they trying to convince us these are actors right now playing a part and they're not actually characters. And I think I've always loved that aspect of the Muppets along with their very stupid humor. I think they're the funniest fucking things on the planet. I do not understand where you think, I'm sorry, Brett, how is this not the most genius movie of all time where we are convinced Kermit the Frog and Fozzie Bear are twins? <laughs> that, that joke goes throughout the whole movie. And when they're like, oh, is that a bear? No, <laughs> it's not wearing a top hat. It's a frog. <laughs> and I agree, like, those are good lines of dialogue. They just weren't as consistent as I wanted them to be. <sighs> you don't like the one that's like, we're going to catch them red-handed. Well, what color are their hands now? If they didn't do it three times, maybe. Like, the first time it was funny. The next two times it was like, we get it. You just don't, you, you just have to have love insufferable humor, I think. And I think the thing is, though, if you do grow up with these Muppets, exactly. you get the humor. Because I remember growing up and, like, Time Life released them on DVD in 2002. My library got them, DVD and VHS, and I would always get the VHS. And they had, like, three Muppet show episodes. And I fell in love with them so much. And like, every time you watch the movies and it's like amazing. And now it's like, I'm so dedicated to the Muppets. I have opinions on them these days and like what they need to do to come back. <laughs> and one of those involves murder, but. <laughs> <laughs> Zay, did you grow up with the Muppets? Um, kinda. I didn't watch them until I was like in fifth grade. Yeah, fifth grade. Because I remember I had read treasure island and then i saw there's muppet treasure island and i was like well i might as well watch this and i absolutely fell in love with the muppets ever since because that was like my first taste of them i'm pretty sure yeah i can't think of watching them before that but that was like it was like a big love affair once that happened gotcha i think that does impact it quite a bit because i don't i don't have like those memories of like growing up with the muppets and so I don't know, but it is what it is, I guess. You I'm, sorry. I, I'm sorry, Christian and Zay. 
I think you should watch the original show though. Like, like find a couple episodes where you know who the celebrity is, and I think you'll dig. The Alice Cooper episode is one of my favorites. Oh, Alice Cooper. On the yes. Episode. Interesting. We, okay. ooh, you should watch the Star Wars episode. Oh yeah. Okay. Star Wars episode's good. Pigs in space. <laughs> Perfect. There's uh, also a Sylvester Stallone one that's wild. Uh, so this was actually nominated for an Oscar for Best Original Song for the First Time It Happens, which is like a big song and dance number, which was absolutely hilarious. There's also a really great scene in um, The Water that involves Miss Piggy, and y'all listening have to read up on it, because it's really interesting how they actually did that, because it involved Frank Oz, who was uh, the voice of Miss Piggy, having to be underwater for like the longest amount of time. Pig. So, um, and this also made about $31 million. People, and I actually did look this up, many people thought the word caper was a mistake because caper films did not do well at the box office. The original title was Muppet Mania. And another choice was going to be the Rocky, like, horror Muppet show. Yeah. Like the I mean, title I- for the same movie? Mm hmm. That's and then, like, Jim Henson's daughter came up with the great Muppet escapade. And then he was like, escapade, escapade, caper, caper, the great Muppet caper. Hmm. Interesting. So, but, yeah. Okay, Brett, but you had to have loved the little baseball scene they included in this. Oh, uh, yeah, that was fun. Okay. I, I liked it, for sure. Four. We're not talking about the utmost movie magic of all time that I never want to know the fucking... Uh, behind the scenes of having Muppets ride bikes. Bad boy. How the fuck do they do that? How the fuck? Well, I won't say it because I know Zay doesn't want to know, but it is is on IMDb how they did it, and it's interesting. Hmm. I want to believe it's magic. I mean, it's so cool, that scene, though. Because it worked so well in the first movie, and they're like, what if we have multiple Muppets? Right? It's like you only know them from pretty much their waist up. You mm-hmm. never see their legs. Hmm. And you can't have like a like a short person in Kermit's suit because his <laughs> legs are so skinny. <laughs> can't give him the ALF treatment. Hmm. Brett's like, I have nothing more to say. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna look that up though. I'm interested in how they, how they did it. The Muppets are owned by Disney, and Disney's done them wrong. That's all I have to finish with. (laughs) They gave them their own little section on Disney+, and that's the most they've done for them. Okay. It's hard to find The Muppet Show because of the music rights. That's it. That's Mm -hmm. that's true. I have the encyclopedia of The Muppets in my head. I'm sorry. I've seen so many (laughs) documentaries over Jim Henson. (laughs) Very nice. All right. Wait, one last thing. Go ahead. Uh, Miss, P- Miss Piggy Fox. Anyway, continue. <laughs> okay. Well, our next movie is one that I picked, um, and it is Mad Max 2, The Road Warrior, directed by George Miller. And so if you've seen the first Mad Max, um, this is the sequel, obviously, but I don't really think it's totally necessary to watch the first film because they are very different movies. Um, but it does follow... Max, our title character, and he is basically in the Australian desert in this um, basically apocalyptic wasteland where everybody is in search for gasoline. Um, And so he encounters these 
these gangs of individuals who ride bikes and have all these souped up cars and whatnot. Um, and ends up finding his way to a settlement with a bunch of people who have a bunch of gasoline, um, but they are constantly terrorized by this gang and are looking to escape um, to a new place and take all of the gas with them. And so Max is just like, you know, I just want some gas so I can get in my car and get the hell out of here. And he's like, I'll help you guys out with doing this if you give me that. And so starts out with that. And from there, it kind of just turns into this big souped up car chase adventure, kind of similar to Mad Max Fury Road. Um, although obviously not quite as intense and spectacle-like because they didn't have the technology and the budget at the time. And so, but Max, it's told from the story of a grown-up version of a kid in the movie who they call the feral kid, um, who's very interesting. And Max is just kind of treated as this kind of like mythic figure who comes and goes as the road warrior and he's there for a short time and then you never see him again. And so the movie's kind of interesting. Um, I know we'll get to the fun facts later, but I call it Mad Max 2 The Road Warrior because there's a little bit of differentiation with the title. In Australia, where the film was made, it was released only as Mad Max 2, but in the U.S., they called it simply The Road Warrior because they didn't think a lot of people had seen the first Mad Max, and they didn't even market it as if it was a sequel at all. And so part of the reason I can say you can skip Mad Max if you want to. It's not quite as good. This one is really good. It's a lot of fun. I think aside from Fury Road, it's by far the best Mad Max movie out of the four. Thoughts? I don't agree with you. Um, so, okay, I have not seen Thunderdome yet. I'm going to get to it. Nope. Because... It. Just kidding. It's okay. It's Tina okay. Turner. Uh, yeah, I was about to say Tina Turner. Aside, as from, aside from Tina Turner, the movie is really weird. But uh, Anyway, anyway. Because um, I had not... I've only seen Fury Road. I've seen that twice now. Excellent movie. Five out of five stars. Um, and I'm also I, I'm also a huge fan of the Blank Check podcast, and they just started their George Miller series. So I'm like, okay, I'm just going to watch all the Mad Max movies. But I haven't got the Thunderdome yet. Um, I've watched the first one, and I was like, oh, this is definitely not what I was expecting. It's definitely like an Ozploitation film. Like, just a lot, like, very down, gritty. Lots of, like, handmade effects and it's not a, it's when you hear mad max you don't you would never think of that first movie because it's so like modern times and just like that could happen it's just a bad um crime year um but then you get to mad max 2 and that's exactly what you're thinking of like with all of like the over-the-top costumes and the post-apocalyptic kind of feel and like how it would like influence so many fucking movies after it with its look of the post-apocalyptic stuff. Um, but I, I liked it, but I think I liked it just as much as the first one. But they're two completely different movies. Mm. I think hearing for so long that, oh, it's like the ultimate like sequel and like one of the best mo action movies of all time, I'm just like, it's fine. I like the visuals. And I like the adrenaline to it, but I just think it's fine. I honestly don't even have a lot of thoughts of the movie. I'm just sitting here like, this is fine. <laughs> I don't know. I wish I had more complex thoughts to think about it because I can see all of the movies after it being influenced, like all the different parodies of it I've seen. 
And I'm just sitting here thinking, oh, those two are obviously gay. And then George Miller will be, oh, I, those are gay. Those characters are not gay. And I'm like, all right, Georgie, those are gay. Um, I'm sorry, you're going to have our villain all in leather? <laughs> Come on. I've seen him at one of my shows before. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just... I don't think the Mad Max movies are something in my vein other than Fury Road. And I think Fury Road is a masterpiece. And I know Fury Road wouldn't exist without Mad Max 2 for obvious reasons, but also the fact that it basically takes one chunk of Mad Max 2 and becomes its old full-fledged movie Mm -hmm. of just running around in a circle. But yeah, that's my thoughts on Mad Max 2, that it's just fine and I understand where how influential to cinema it is. But at the same time, I don't see myself ever wanting to be like, oh, bro, let's watch Mad Max 2. Sure. Um, So I had seen this before because when Fury Road came out, I decided to watch them all. Mm -hmm. Other, I I literally, at that time, I liked Thunderdome the most of them. Interesting. Yeah. So this, watching this, and Brett knows I was kind of hesitant because I kept asking, well, do I have to watch the first one? And I did, and I didn't really like it. And then this one starts retelling what the first one was. So I really didn't have to see the first one. I don't really have a whole lot of big thoughts on this. Like, say, it's a fine movie. Yes, Fury Road probably wouldn't have been where it is today if it weren't for this. Because the first one is labeled as like a post-apocalyptic thing, but I'm like looking at it and it's like, where's the actual apocalypse of this? And then this one starts like, well, guess what? There was an apocalypse over gas and the world went to hell. And then they're all dressed the way they are. It's like, okay, this is where the apocalypse officially starts in this one. That's how you know we're not in the apocalypse right now because gas is so cheap. (laughs) Yeah. So, and we're not wearing leather. Well, well, <laughs> some of us are bored. Some of us, yeah. Um, but yeah, I liked Mel Gibson didn't have a whole lot of dialogue in this, so he couldn't blame anybody. <laughs> Honestly, though, Mel Gibson, he's the, I should see him, not hear him. <laughs> um, but no, I don't know. It's, it's interesting. And like the whole godlike complex where you see him once, but Max never returns. I can only ask myself how, because like Australia, it's very secluded. It's an <laughs> island. How's that possible? You don't run into him twice. That's a good point. But, Maybe you yeah. left here and died. Like, no. Uh, I don't know. Have you, yeah. you've seen this before though, right? Yeah, so same as you, when Fury Road came out, I watched the first three before I went and saw that. And so, I don't know. My thoughts on it haven't really changed. I think, if anything, it didn't enthrall me quite as much this time, but I think that's mostly because Fury Road is the standard now. Like, Fury Road is so good. It is a masterpiece, and this just isn't on that level. I think one thing it misses that Fury Road has is Fury Road has that underlying narrative to it and those themes, whereas this one, they might be in there, but it's mostly just a short action film um, where the hero comes and goes, and there's these villains, and they're all dressed in leather and have these really interesting costumes. They get shit done, and then it's over. And so beyond that, there's not a whole lot to it. But to me, that's also kind of the appeal to it. Like, I'm here just to watch this and have fun and to really see what they did, because... 1981, some of the stunts that they do here and some of the effects are still really, really good. And so... Oh, yeah, those stunts are wild. Yeah. 
Like this should have 1981 with uh, American Werewolf in London jump started the makeup Oscar. It should have this Mad Max two should have jump started the stunt um, casting and Oscar. Absolutely, I agree. That's one I'm still surprised you don't have because even the SAG Awards have that. Yeah, I mean I agree. I feel like um, Jim Carrey's uh, stunt men really should get it this year because. Oh my! That's all we're gonna get. <laughs> I thought this is a, like a Grinch joke. I know. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is a 2020 cinema's dead joke. <laughs> oh, sad. Yeah, this was directed by George Miller. Um, directed all the Mad Max films. Uh, box office only 36 million, but it was the highest-grossing Australian film of that year worldwide and in Australia. Actually, until Gallipoli came along later. I think it actually made a lot more. Crawlicky. Crawlicky. Uh, no Oscar noms, but it did win a lot, or did get six noms at the Saturn Awards, including a win for Best International Film. And George Miller, I read that he had a very unhappy experience doing the first film because of how limited he was. So with this one, having a bigger budget and a lot more to work with, he had a lot more fun with it and was able to do more of what he wanted to do. And the original cut was actually a lot more bloody and violent than it originally was, but it had to be trimmed down both for censors in Australia and the U.S. And so, and like I said, this was not marketed as a sequel in the U.S. because they didn't think that most Americans had seen the first one, um, even though it was making the runs on cable TV those days. And so... I would like to take a quick opportunity to rank George Miller's... uh, number two films um number three is happy feet two number two is mad max two and number one is Bay pig in the city (laughs) um that movie is a masterpiece i knew that would come up at some point (laughs) (laughs) i'm sorry mad max two just has nothing on babe pig in the city i need to watch it again I need to watch both those movies again. I haven't seen them in so long. Babe is fine. Babe, Pig in the City is so fucking weird. They, that's li- they literally were like, George, you know what you're doing. Do whatever the fuck you want. <laughs> literally just remember, he does have an Oscar for Happy Feet. Yeah, that's his Oscar. That's so weird. <laughs> Should have one for Fury Road, but here we are. All right. Zay, would you like to take it away with our next movie? I sure fucking would. <laughs> Get your scratch and sniff cards ready. <laughs> the next film is Polyester, directed, produced, and written by my fucking idol, John Waters. I'm so excited to talk about a John Waters movie on this podcast. All right. Polyester follows Francine Fishpaw and her family in suburban Baltimore. And basically, um, there's no narrative structure to this fucking thing. (laughs) It's Francine, she's a mom, and her uh, husband owns a porn theater in town. Um, For the listeners going, this is definitely not the usual fare we bring to this podcast. Um, This and her son is the... uh, neighborhood foot stomper because he has a foot fetish that he does not know how to um properly show his 
love for. So he goes around stomping women's feet. Um, their daughter is a delinquent who just got pregnant. Um, yeah, and Francine's life is just just hell. She doesn't know how to deal with anything. Um, her best friend got a lot of money recently, but her mom shames her for being, um, I don't know how to say this <laughs> well, um, for not being up to standards for her mother. And it's just a wild movie. Her husband leaves her for another woman, I think her secretary, yeah, his secretary. I don't know why a porn theater owner has a secretary. <laughs> um, and then Francine, uh, her son leaves and goes to like a boarding school. Her daughter gets an abortion. Um, this narrative is great. Um, and then she- kids. Get, what? To become better kids. To become better kids, of course. Um, and then she meets Todd tomorrow, played by the amazing, um, uh, fuck. Why am I blanking? Tap Hunter. I know. I Shut up. I didn't also mention Francine is played by the decadent di- divine. So fucking good. Um, so and Todd basically you think that Todd is going to save all of her problems but it's just adding more issues but her kids come back and the kids are better than ever it's just a fucking wild romp of a movie John Waters is very directly inspired by um Douglas Sirk and the melodramas of the 1950s and 60s and um also William Castle because John Waters developed an odorama card um, throughout the film, there's like little numbers that pop up on screen and you have to scratch and sniff this card and it is the most terrible thing I've ever smelled in my fucking life. <laughs> I did it once and it was stuck on my nail for hours and I was so upset. Oh no. Um, it's just a funny fucking movie. Like John clearly loves those melodramas as much as I do and like since our last podcast was 1950 and we got to see so many of those melodramas I could see how fucking good this movie was and like how on point it was and yeah this is still only like my I'm like gushing about this and it's still only like my fifth favorite John Waters movie wow um so yeah I want to hear Brett's thoughts on this because I this is your first John Waters isn't it my first John Waters. Yes, I want to hear about your thoughts. I'm safe. <laughs> I was just like, I was immediately like and completely attentive to this whole thing because something is happening at all times. <laughs> like there is never a slow mo- moment in this movie. There's always something going on. And in the next minute, there's something else completely different going on. And I laughed a lot through this movie. I could not get over the stopper hotline. Like, if you have any information about this stomper, please call the stomper hotline. <laughs> that had me fucking rolling. Um, I thought Divine was great. Um, I think it's, yeah, my first movie with Divine as well. And so, yeah, I really enjoyed Divine's performance. I also love Cuddles, um, mm-hmm. friend in the movie. I think she was great and really funny. And the ending, I just really love the ending and how it's like juxtaposes like big violence and mm-hmm. like 
dramatic violence and then just all of a sudden it's like oh yes so happy happy like instantly <laughs> afterwards and that that's like the only ending i could imagine for this movie based on everything that happens leading up to that with all these themes it's talking about poking fun at suburbia and those melodramas like you mentioned from the 50s it's very easy to see that john waters is direct you know calling back to those and putting his take on it and yeah all the characters are just out there and fun and ones that we want to watch and yeah i enjoyed it i'm really interested to hear where i should go next with john waters aside from pink flamingo because i'm sure we'll be watching it very soon as well so well me and christian love serial mom i think you like serial mom (laughs) oh my god (laughs) we'll see what those about please please watch serial mom or hairspray you'll get a kick out of hairspray Oh, hairspray is hairspray is his next film. Oh, okay, gotcha. Um, so I love polyester. I'm showing them all this right now that Zay got me for my birthday. The special Criterion edition. I just want to read something on this: the Criterion Collection, a continuing series of important classic and contemporary films, presents polyester. I love that they've included three John Waters films now. Like, so Divine in this is so fucking great. I mean, there's a lot of heavy breathing because, I mean, Divine is such an attizzy through all of this. It's like, oh, oh, my children. Oh, oh, oh. It's like, breathe. Oh, my God. Jeez. But no. And I was like, when I watched this, I watched it on a website because, I mean, all the libraries are closed. I didn't have this at the time. But now I want to watch it again, as I told Zay, because this has the scratch and sniff card. And like you can already smell something in this Blu-ray case. <laughs> I'm, it's true. Well, I mean, I list some of the stuff off. You have to. Sm- there's a fucking fart in there. There's a f- um, gasoline. Even the pizza one does not smell good. <laughs> it's like this is a perfect companion piece to any Douglas Sirk movie, and I'm really mm-hmm. interested to like watch this and then watch probably, I don't know, all that heaven allows or something like that. Mm-hmm. But no, it's a hilarious film and is very. It's not as shocking as the other John Waters movies. It's got plenty of things in it, though. Yeah, like, like I'm not like, oh my. <laughs> no, like, it does not make me want to actively gag like Pink Flamingos. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, um, I like, oh, what's Edith Massey? I love her. I, she's so. iconic. Like, and then, like, her whole story being rich, but you don't really know it. Like, nobody knows it. She comes in and she's all, like, decked out. This is looking like a horse jockey. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have anything, like, because I know you've met John Waters and you've read, like, a shit ton of his books. Do you have anything that interesting that he said about this, the making of? Oh, so many things. Um, So Tab Hunter was the big get, right? Um, Up until Polyester, he had only worked with his friends um, called the Dreamlanders. That's what... Because he had Dreamlander Productions and all of his friends, he would just lovingly call the Dreamlanders. Um, but when he got, um, he just really wanted to have a get for this movie because he was really interested in William Castle. And William Castle has the gimmicks, right? And that's where Odorama comes from. But William Castle also had the gimmick of having someone famous in his movies, like when he had Joan Crawford for a couple films. So he was thinking, well, who do I get? And Tab Hunter had stopped working. And he got in touch with Tab Hunter. I forget how they got in touch, but um, basically he had to, he, he 
likes to claim that um, I paid Tab Hunter more money than I have ever paid anyone else in my movies, and I'm sure Tab Hunter was paid the least amount he's ever gotten to be in a movie. Um, and it's all, it's really funny because Tab Hunter also got fined by um, the Screen Actor Guild for working with John because John was not using the Screen Actor Guild yet because it was still like his production company and he didn't like have actual actors working for him. Like Tab was the only actual actor on his set and he had him for two weeks. Um, so all the, the, the things with Tab Hunter was filmed quite quickly. Um, and uh, they filmed in Baltimore in the suburbs. If you watch like his older films, all of them take place in kind of like the urban areas of Baltimore, but this is more suburbia because you know, you want the Douglas Sirkian feel for it. Um, and he filmed in like a real neighborhood and the neighbors hated him. <laughs> they would be filming up until like three or 4 a.m. and just divine screaming. <laughs> Oh, geez, what's going on over there? <laughs> and there's a scene with like using an actual ambulance, and someone called the police <laughs> because they thought there was a real emergency. Um. So yeah, there was. Um. When Tab Hunter showed up, though, then there was no complaints. They were like, "Oh, Tab Hunter." Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was a lot of fun. I, he, he talks about how much he loved filming that and how like Tab Hunter is like a genuinely good person to have been filming with. And uh, Tab Hunter wrote in his memoir that is pretty good that I read um, and how like how much he loved working with John and all the fucking freaks of <laughs> his friends. Yeah, so. Nice. I think that's, I can't think of any like other like special stories for polyester. Because that's when Polyester was like his last indie film. It was made for $300,000, which was the most he had gotten for a film at that point. And that was for um, Hairspray, would be his first studio film, which would be seven years later. Yeah, no, I, I really enjoyed it. It's one that I could see myself watching again easily and whatnot. And I also found it really funny thinking about the fun facts we have here that it was John Waters first R rated movie and how normally when you hear that, you think, Oh, they've done mostly like PG PG 13. It's like, no, this is his first movie. That's not like X rated. Exactly. It was like, it was his first movie shown in like actual theaters and not like, like underground theaters or like midnight showings and stuff. Like it was the first one to get like a limited release. Makes sense. Yeah. And it's funny because his next movie, Hairspray would get a PG rating. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we're going to turn into a hit Broadway musical oh it, he talks about so much how Hairspray has paid his bills for like <laughs> the rest of his life okay and then um, and when he made the Odorama card uh, he did not renew his license for it or I guess the studio didn't really renew his license for it so later on it was used for one of the Rugrats movies that's and, right oh, yeah and I remember was, seeing it and then he was like, um, what's going on here? And they're like, oh, it's an homage to you. And he's like, no, a paycheck is an homage. Yeah, and and the theme song, he got Tab Hunter to sing for it because while Tab Hunter was famous for like his movies he did in like the 50s and 60s as a hunk, before that he was also like a hit singer. 
who had a bunch of hit songs. And it was written by Chris Stein and Debbie Harry of Blondie, who he tried to get to sing the song, but they couldn't because of licensing stuff. Similar mm-hmm. to SAG, but they caught it. They were like, oh, we ain't doing that shit. Pat <laughs> Hunter was fine, though. Interesting. So, yeah, that's polyester. Perfect. Fucking love that movie. Watch it with your family. <laughs> <laughs> I think this you told me yesterday, you're like, my parents will like it. Yeah, your parents would love it. <laughs> <laughs> also, no, this is also a very obscure fact. They would show this movie on airplanes. But they would take, oh. out, they would take out one scene, and it's the guy with the jock strap on. They would take that out. Everything else <laughs> No, my favorite small detail in this movie is when the dog hangs himself. <laughs> Oh yeah, I was gonna mention that. <laughs> That's the funniest <laughs> fucking thing. Oh jeez, very funny movie, very enjoyable. Not for the faint of heart, but you can <laughs> still see it. Very much so. Oh Brett, he's like, oh boy, what do I have in store for me? <laughs> oh, you are not. Y'all got to turn it, tune into the 1972 episode where I will not be a part of, but <laughs> Christian promised he'll make Brett watch Pink Flamingos. It will happen. Oh, God. Just film yourself watching it, please. I want to see your reaction. <laughs> will do. I, on my birthday, I showed my friends Pink Flamingos, and I didn't, I barely watched the movie. I was just watching them watch Pink Flamingos. Makes sense. Oh, my God. It's perfect. Anyway. Everyone should watch a John Waters movie. <laughs> All right. We have arrived at our final film. This is the second one I picked. Um, one that I really didn't know a whole lot about, but I kept seeing it pop up on like best of 1981 lists. And so I decided we should check it out. Um, and it is Thief, directed by Michael Mann. And so this is a story of a, a thief. He's a professional safe cracker who um, kind of wants to do this one big last job, settle down with his girlfriends um, and their soon to be adopted child. But he does it by taking on a big job for the mafia. And as can probably be expected, his ideas for what this job is gonna be is different from what the mafia is gonna expect from him. And so a lot of it is exploring this character who's played by James Caan and what his past was like, who his friends are now, and what he does, and what his plans are for the future. And so for me, I guess the movie at times felt more authentic than I anticipated, because I know there's a lot of movies where you have this former criminal, gangster, whatever, who wants to reform their life. But this one felt a little more honest than other films I've seen take on that especially when James Kahn has this really great scene in the diner with Tuesday Weld, his girlfriend in the movie, talking about what he's done and what he wants to do now. And so I really enjoyed it. I found the movie pretty smart and strategic throughout, especially with the scenes where he is actually cracking safes um, and doing his work. And I thought the James Kahn performance was probably the best I've seen from him, even more so than his Oscar-nominated role for The Godfather. And so, though he was not nominated for this, I definitely would have liked to have seen him be. My biggest qualm with the movie, aside from some of the language the characters use, because he's not a particularly likable character, but he's not supposed to be, I don't think. But there is not enough Willie Nelson in this movie whatsoever. He shows up at the beginning and a little bit later on, and he's great for like one scene. 
and then we don't get hardly any of them after that. So if you throw more Willie Nelson in this movie, I think he'd be in consideration for Best Supporting Actor. But alas, here we are. So. I was I was shocked when I saw Willie Nelson. Like, I didn't know he was in the movie, and then his name comes on the screen. I was like, oh, oh, in this yeah. movie? Because <laughs> I, I, the only other, like, acting, um, um, acting thing he did was Honeysuckle Rose from the year before. But that's basically A Star is Born, <laughs> but country. And I was like, oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I like I when you suggested Thief, it's one of those like posters I've seen a bunch of times where I'm like, I guess I'll watch that one day. And then you did the podcast. I was like, I guess I'm watching it now. Um, this was also my first Michael Mann movie. I've never seen a Michael Mann movie before this. Um, so I really didn't know what to expect. And um watching it, I was like, yeah, I can dig this. I like the feel of the film. I just and I love the acting. The acting is very good. Um, I forget who I really liked. I liked the older guy. What's his name? Leo. Leo. I Robert liked Prosky. Yeah, Robert Prosky. Yeah. He was very good in this movie. I agree. Um, uh, my favorite thing in the movie, I mean, I love the atmosphere. I loved how he filmed it. Like the neon, the dark, like bluish black of like some air. Like that was very good. My favorite is the score by Tangerine Dream. They make amazing scores. I thought their like um, their like light synth score worked worked super well for this movie, and I thought it made like a very like dark, very like definitely nineteen eighties atmosphere that worked super well for it. Um, overall, I liked it, and it kind of inspired me. Like maybe I'll go see some other Michael Manns that I've been ignoring this whole time. Apparently, nice. Um, first time I saw this again, yeah, like Zay said, uh, you see this poster a lot, and especially if you follow film Twitter, like all the straight white guys are like Michael Mann, you know, they jerk off to his movies or whatever. Except especially Miami Vice, I do not get it. Yeah, I've never seen Miami Vice. Me either. But that and Heat and Heat, you hear a lot about Heat. You do. I love the Heat. Sandra Bullock, Melissa McCarthy, great movie. I'm serious yes, that's a great movie, though. Um, I guess, yeah, I've seen The Insider and Collateral. Those are both good. But, no, this is good. I like James Conn a lot. That diner scene really is great. Like, I was kind of floored at that. Um, Robert Prosky's good in this. I only really know him from, like, Mrs. Doubtfire. And I was surprised that this is, like, his first movie, but he's already an older guy in this. Um, the only issue I had, I think, was... And this happens just because I'm stupid sometimes, but I turned my head once and I was a little confused at the beginning of this film. Hmm. Willie Nelson's scene was great. I love Willie in this. Um, it took me a while to get back into the flow of what exactly was happening. He's basically like a thief who wants to be done with his job and just live a normal life. It's a. It feels a lot more complex than that once you actually watch it, but... Yeah, I think how he becomes connected to the mob is a little complex and perhaps a yeah. bit confusing for sure. Because I did too. Like at the beginning, I I did get a little off track. Like when they he finds out that people are like basically stealing his goods and killed his partner and whatnot, and how he became connected with the mafia because that that part was a little bit complex. So, but yeah, I actually so I forget. I don't know a whole lot about Michael Mann. Like I've seen the insider and collateral as well. And I've also seen the last of the Mohicans. 
I don't know what particularly sets him apart. Like he doesn't seem to have like a huge like style, I guess, to me. I feel that the style is like grittiness. It, yeah, it's definitely gritty. Like I was thinking like this movie. Yeah, definitely macho. This movie felt like a 70s film for a lot of it. Like a 70s macho character study type thing. Oh, it definitely felt like he watched Taxi Driver a few times and he's like, oh, I have an idea. Exactly. Yeah. I also felt it uh, reminded me of this movie I watched for 1950 um, called Bob Le Flambeur. Flambeur. I cannot speak whatever language that is. I forgot what country it was. Um, But basically that movie was about a guy who has a gambling addiction and he's like recovered, but then he's doing like one last thing to like, as a cover, um, to like gamble while people behind the scenes are like doing a crime. But then he forgets that thing because he loves gambling so much and that kind of fucks everything over. And it kind of reminded me of that. Makes sense. Interesting. Yeah, this wasn't a big box office hit. Um, 11.5 million at the box office. It was Michael Mann's directorial feature debut. Though we had done a TV movie before this. It was based on a book called The Home Invaders, Confessions of a Cat Burglar um, that was written by an actual um, thief named John Siebold under a pseudonym, Frank Hoheimer, I guess is how it's pronounced. That's smart. Yeah. Um, James Kahn, we mentioned the diner scene. He did say that that was his favorite scene of his career, but that he did have trouble at times getting into this character because it did take a lot of work. Um, but when it premiered at Cannes, it was originally called Violent Streets, which I'm really glad they changed the name, honestly. And I saw that Roger Ebert called it one of the most intelligent thrillers I've seen. So high praise from Roger. Any other thoughts on Thief before we jump into our personal awards? I'd like to see other uh, Michael Mann movies, and especially uh, Miami Vice and Heat, only because those are the two that and thief i guess so those are the three that i hear the most about really yeah i don't know i've seen the other ones like the insider um i haven't oh collateral and manhunter i've seen that and yeah it's like the gritty i don't know the gritty gritty realness of the world realism yeah yeah i mean it's not my favorite but i think even for people that are like i don't think that'd be my kind of movie i suggest seeing at least once because i don't think i'll see it again but i like that i saw it the one time and I'll probably look up the score because I really like Tangerine Dream. Yeah, it is a good score. So I guess before I almost skipped them again, before we go into our um, personal winners and nominees, we should talk about our honorable mentions. Okay, so we do got some honorable mentions here. First on the list is The Evil Dead, which I saw for the first time and loved. So fucking good. Ah, uh, classic. Yes. Maybe. You need, have you, you need to see Evil Dead 2 now. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It's completely different. That's what I've heard. A lot more comedic. Mm-hmm. But it's great. Nice. Uh, we have Mommy Dearest, with, which, Christian, I know you're really excited to... Christina! Bring me the axe! <laughs> A classic. Uh, this movie is, like, camp to the extreme, but it's also very good, and I watch it every single Mother's Day with my mother. That's our thing. Wow. Yes, I, I do a drag routine too. Oh, I used to, with me and my friend, and my friend plays Christina, and we oh. do. It's Mama. It's Mama Mia by ABBA. <laughs> 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 Ooh, 
with I like, like dialogue thrown in every time we go to like texas roadhouse i get my steak like medium which is like with a little pink still and my mom was always like that's like raw and i'm like it's not raw christina it's rare <laughs> <laughs> for those who don't know yeah this is the story of joan crawford um and her daughter christina who suffered abuse at the hands of her mother according to her um autobiography about all this which it's based on so which john waters does a comment i need to listen to the commentary because i got the dvd a few months back john waters believes this is like a legit like movie <laughs> like he he doesn't talk about the campiness of it he believes that it is like a great movie right. this movie also probably broke faye dunaway's career oh for sure i yeah. mean Supposedly she has, like, she says that Joan still haunts her to this day. <laughs> <laughs> That's why she called him that word. One is just a little gay boy. <laughs> Joan was like, Joan personally set her up for that Oscar fail. Oh, my God. Uh, we also had Blowout from Brian De Palma, which I saw and loved. Um, like, John Travolta is actually really good in it, which was interesting. Um... I think it's kind of related to Blow Up by Antonioni, which I've never seen, haven't had Terrible much desire movie. to. Terrible. Yeah. Good to know. Um, Time Bandits. I watched that. That's um, by Terry Gilliam. And it's about, I'm pretty sure I saw it as a kid because I had sort of flashbacks watching it. But it's about a group of dwarves who, alongside this kid, jump from time to time. So, like, they literally time travel, just trying to take other people's gold throughout time. And they sort of get in trouble with their master and the evil of the world who wants to destroy all of that. And it's really fun. And I really loved it. I'm sorry. It's great. Nice. Yeah. So a movie that we were originally going to watch was My Dinner with Andre. With Only one of us ended up watching. <laughs> Not even the person that would originally picked it. Yeah. <laughs> I watched it. It's with Andre Gregory and Wallace Shawn, and it was so like pretentious New York theater people speak that I couldn't get into it. But Wallace Shawn does say inconceivable in the movie, which I loved. So. <laughs> <laughs> he does. Not like the way he does in The Princess Bride, but he does say it's inconceivable. So. Uh, uh, we have Disney's The Fox and the Hound come out this year. That's one of my movie. one of my favorites growing up, and I don't think I want to rewatch it because I don't think I'll like it as much anymore. Oh, fair. Another werewolf movie, The Howling, with Joe Dante, and I'm pretty sure Rick Baker did the makeup on that too. Oh wow, maybe I might be wrong, but it was fine. I mean, when you have two werewolf movies, there's a better of the two. Believe me. Yeah. <laughs> You said that like, like the way you said it. Just yes, I don't know. It was you were throwing shade as if you worked on American Werewolf in London. You're like the Howling. Come on, yeah. Um, he he did do the special effects on the Howling. Okay, he did. Okay. We also had History of the World Part One. Um, Mel Brooks. I used to not like it, and I love it. It's very raunchy and stuff. And that goes time to time to time. The best part is they have a whole Spanish Inquisition song, and it's great. And there's a lot of um, Jewish jokes, because that's what Mel Brooks is best at. 
We also have um, another Australian film, Gallipoli, which is about the major World War I battle in Turkey. The whole movie is fine. The last like 20 minutes is amazing. Um, I want to see that only because it's like, I'm always curious as to why Australia even got into like how they got to Turkey. Like what was their whole point in fighting there? Yeah, and it doesn't, it doesn't go into that as much as I wanted to. It's very much about the two main characters and why they're going to fight, but it doesn't really go too heavily into why they're there. But next one is uh, Pennies from Heaven. Uh, a great fucking musical. Steve Martin, Bernadette Peters, uh, Jessica Harper. Um, basically, it's a musical pretty much ripping apart 1930s musicals. Mm. but also being like a really cool homage to them everyone sings but they don't like they're just lip-syncing old songs which uh, i did not know which was like a really cool aspect of it i think interesting it's very good i will say i didn't like it the first time i watched it and i understood why yesterday why i didn't like it and that was because of the whole singing thing and then i ended mm. up liking it so Nice. The whole time I was like, do I like this? Do I not like this? And then I was like, oh, wait, no, it's supposed to have slimy characters who don't learn their lesson. So be prepared for that when, if okay. you do watch it. Nice. Next one we have here is Zoot Suit. Oh, yes. I actually didn't watch it, but I have seen it. And mm-hmm. it is a, about the Zoot Suit riots of the, oh gosh, I think it's the 40s in Los Angeles. Um, it's a, Chicano movie, which I love me those because there ain't enough representation of my people on screen. And it has James uh, Edward Olmos in it. And it's a musical. Yeah. It's a very interesting musical because it, many people I've read, like through Letterboxd reviews, they complain about the staging of it because it does look like it is staged on a stage when it is a movie. Mm, okay. Yeah. But it's kind of hard to find, which is why I couldn't watch it. But yeah. Gotcha. Just want to put that out there. Gotcha. I think that's one I wanted to watch, but just didn't get to. I will get to it one day. My apologies. So our next one was Prince of the City, which is directed by Sidney Lumet. And I only watched it because I read his book, Making Movies, recently. And he talks about this movie a lot. And so it's pretty good. It's just very long. It's like two hours and 47 minutes. About police corruption, basically. Um, we also had Escape from New York, Kurt Russell. Yes. Um, John Carpenter. I, that, uh, I, I quote unquote watched it. I watched it when the sun was in the sky the highest and I could only see about 20% of the whole movie until it turned daylight and I saw it, but it's good. It's fine. Um, oh, yeah. Russell. What? Is it Kurt Russell? Yeah. These, you know, you see his arms. All right, and Zay, it is your time to shine. Let's hear about your mini horror flicks. So, yeah, yeah. usually I add, like, a bunch to these honorable mentions, but because I am obnoxious and I was, like, looking at 1981, and I was like, oh, there's a lot of horror movies, and those are my bread and butter. Um, So I decided I'm going to take one whole minute to go down every 1981 horror film I've seen and give you a quick, do I like this or do I not like this? Um, someone start a timer. Okay, you ready? Yes. And go. Possession, great art house, fucking phenomenal feminist film, Evil Dead, classic, low budget, 
American Werewolf in London. We did that. Beyond, gross, goopy Italian film. Wolfen, a great werewolf thriller. Nightmare, it's cheap, it's tawdry, love it. Happy birthday to me, that fucking killer, you'll never get it. My Bloody Valentine, oh my God, that's so good. Small town, like hysteria. Dark Knight of the Scarecrow, really good uh, atmospheric horror. Dead and Buried, Grandpa Joe is a necromancer. The Burning, um, don't look at who wrote the movie, but it's good. Shock Treatment, uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show sequel no one talks about. It's great. Bloody Moon, one of the worst dubbing I've ever seen in a fucking movie. The Fun House, Toby Hooper does Carnival, great. Um, Fanes, an Egyptian Rocky Horror ripoff. Ten seconds. Amazing. What? Left? <laughs> Scanners. Cronenberg. <laughs> um, uh, Two. One. Okay, I'm going to keep going. Uh, Scanners, a Cronenbergian film. Uh, it is Cronenberg, sorry. Uh, it's classic, but I don't love it as much as everyone else. Halloween 2 undoes a lot of things in the first movie, but it's still scary. <laughs> Bloody Birthday, uh, creepy kid movie. The Other Hell, creepy nun movie. Inseminoid, great title, alien ripoff. I had a fun. The House by the Cemetery, <laughs> there's shit in the basement. Madhouse, another creepy birthday movie. <laughs> The Boogans, uh, Shits in the Tunnels. It's pretty fun. Night School, a slasher where everyone's head falls off. The Black Cat, a slasher with a cat. That's that's enough for you to watch it. The Howling, we mentioned that. The Pit, scary fucking kid with a scary fucking teddy bear. It's Canadian, people fall in a hole. Allison's Birthday, I don't remember, but it was fun. Graduation Day, uh, another slasher. The Fan, Lauren Bacall and a proto-slasher. Final exam. Lots of gay shit going on. Friday the 13th Part 2, The Long Jason, Dawn of the Mummy. It's really boring until the last 10 minutes. Eyes of a Stranger. Just go watch Wait Until Dark. Madman. It's not good, but someone hides in a fridge. Uh, the Prowler. Good soundtrack. Absurd. It's it's fine. Deadly Blessing. Wes Craven says Amish people might be the problem. <laughs> Hospital Massacre. It's fun title. Boring film. Hell Knight. Linda Blair's in a slasher. It's not good either. The Last Shark is just Italian Jaws. Scream. I, nothing happens. It's bad. I think... I think Amish people might be the problem. <laughs> it's going to be the name of a documentary I would like to explore. <laughs> I was just like, we... go ahead. That was like, how many did I say? That was like 42? Yeah, 42. Yeah. That was impressive. I, <laughs> some of those that just like stuck out to me, I was like pulling up on IMDb and I love the description for night school. Who's been decapitating the innocent girls at a local night school? The police are baffled. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I've seen that. My favorite thing about slashers in the 80s is they're just nouns. <laughs> they're just nouns, and they're like, this is a slasher surrounding this one noun. Well, I was talking about the night school with Kevin Hart. Oh, yes, yes. Absolutely. So, yeah. Um, I'd like to write more about the, the horror films in 1981, but that was my very quick... I tried to do it a minute, and then apparently I couldn't get through the first 20. <laughs> that was still impressive. All right. So a lot of honorable mentions, a lot of movies worth checking out that weren't nominated, especially those that we talked about. So now we'll go on and do our personal awards for the year. And so if y'all are ready, I think we'll just jump in with Best Adapted Screenplay. So yes. Zay, do you want to take us away? All right, well, mine's already fucked because I didn't know the rules about Das Boot, but we're going ahead with it anyway. Go for it. 
Uh, number five, I have Mommy Dearest. Number four, I have Das Boot. Number three, Pennies from Heaven. Number two, The Great Muppet Caper. And number one, On Golden Pond. Uh, for my number five, I have Thief. I had an original screenplay, but then you said it was based off of something, so... Uh, number four, I have Pennies from Heaven. Number three, Mommy Dearest. Number two, The Great Muppet Caper. And number one, On Golden Pond. All right. My number five, I did have The Great Muppet Caper. Number four, I have Gallipoli. Number three, I have On Golden Pond. Number two, I have Prince of the City. And number one is Thief. Wow. Way to be different than us, Brad. You know what? Got to be different. <laughs> All right. Let's move on to best original screenplay. Okay. Number five, I have Raiders of the Lost Ark. Number four, I have The Evil Dead. Number three, I have An American Werewolf in London. Number two, I have the horror film Possession that I mentioned earlier. It's very good. I, I don't remember what country it's from, but everyone should seek it out. It's not, it's out of print. I don't know. Go <laughs> steal it. And number one, of course, Polyester. Uh, my original screenplay, I have Raiders of the Lost Ark, number five, Arthur for number four, Reds at number three, Polyester, number two. And my number one is actually Time Bandits. Mm. Interesting. Okay, my number five is The Evil Dead. My number four is Raiders of the Lost Ark. Number three, Reds. Number two, Polyester. And my number one is Blowout. Hmm. I'm surprised I wouldn't be adapted. Yeah, I think I looked into it. Let me double check. Because <laughs> I don't think it was officially a remake. It was just kind of wink, wink type of remake type thing. Welcome to Christian's Court. So, <laughs> dun dun. I don't know. It just says Brandon Palmer wrote it, so whatever. All right, let's move on to best supporting actor. All right, number five. I made this joke, but uh, Jack Albertson for Dead and Buried. He played Grandpa Joe, and <laughs> fucking, I hate him. I, <laughs> not the actor. The, I hate Grandpa Joe. Um, but he plays a necromancer in Dead and Buried. It's it's a wild fucking movie. You got to see it. It's on YouTube. Uh, number four, Jack Nicholson in Reds. Number three, Robert Prosky in Thief. Number two, Tab Hunter in Polyester. And number one, John Geekland. Geekland oh, I fucked up. Arthur. <laughs> Lord. Um, <laughs> number five, I have Robert Prosky for Thief. Number four, Doug McKeon for On Golden Pond, who is Billy. Number three, Griffin Dunn for An American Werewolf in London. Number two, David Rappaport in Time Bandits. He is one of the lead dwarves in the adventure. And number one, Sir John Gielgud for Arthur. All right. Number five, I have Paul Freeman for Raiders of the Lost Ark. He plays the main villain. Number four, I have Ian Holm for Chariots of Fire. Number three, I have Jack Nicholson for Reds. Number two, Robert Prosky for Thief. And number one, once again, John Gilgood for Arthur. Great win. None of these put uh, Willie Nelson. I wanted to say Woody <laughs> Oh, wow. He came back. If he was in more of the movie, like I said, I would have. I just didn't feel like there's enough of him. I agree. Weren't it? All right. Best Supporting Actress. All right. Number five, Kate Reed for Atlantic City. Number four, Marie Stapleton for Reds. 
Number three, Jessica Harper for Pennies from Heaven. Number two, Edith Massey for Polyester. And my win is Jane Vonda for Angelin Bond. All right. So I have Kate Reed in number five for Atlantic City. Diana Scarwood for Mommy Dearest in number four. She is older Christina. Number three, Karen Allen for Raiders of the Lost Ark. Number two, Jane Fonda for On Golden Pond. And my winner is Mara Hobble for Mommy Dearest, who is young Christina. Oh. Yes. Interesting. This is, I'm pretty sure, our first child actor winner for Christian. See, I was thinking about them, but then I was like, I genuinely do not like their acting styles. (laughs) All right. My number five is Kate Reed for Atlantic City. My number four is Maureen Stapleton for Reds. Number three, Jane Fonda for On Golden Ponds. My number two is Liza Minnelli for Arthur. And my number one is Edith Massey for Polyester. Yes. Oh, my God. I love cuddles. In that <laughs> oh, you're going to fucking love her in Pink Flamingos. Oh, boy. <laughs> All right. Best leading actor. All right. Best actor. Number five, we have Bruce Campbell for The Evil Dead. Number four, Warren Beatty for Reds. Number three, Harrison Ford for Raiders of the Lost Ark. Number two, Henry Fonda for On Golden Pond. And number one, Divine for Polyester. All right. So me, I have number five, Mr. Warren Beatty for Reds. Harrison Ford at number four for Raiders. Three, Dudley Moore for Arthur. Two, Henry Fonda for On Golden Pond. And number one, Divine for Polyester. All right. My number five, I have Harrison Ford for Raiders of the Lost Ark. Number four, I have Warren Beatty for Reds. Number three, I have Henry Fonda for On Golden Pond. Number two, I have Divine for Polyester. And number one, I have James Caan for Thief. But for the voting, Divine won. That's true. Divine does win. And that's all that matters in my heart. (laughs) Oh, I can't wait for this next one. Oh, it's going to be wild. (laughs) All right. Best leading actress. All right. Number five. I put Liza Minnelli as best actress for Arthur. Number five. Number four. Bernadette Peters for Pennies from Heaven. Number three. Catherine Hepburn for On Golden Pond. Number two. Faye Dunaway for Mommy Dearest. And my win is another poll. Isabel Adjani for Possession. It's you gotta see the movie, I swear to God. I was going to see the movie yesterday. I, I know, I realized this morning, I was like, oh shit, I forgot to send the link. <laughs> um, okay, so number five, I have Bernadette Peters from Pennies from Heaven. Number four, Miss Piggy for The Great Muppet Caper. Number three, Diane Keaton for Reds. Number two, Katherine Hepburn on Golden Pond. And my winner, Faye Dunaway for Mommy Dearest. Wow, okay. My number five is Faye Dunaway from Mommy Dearest. (laughs) (laughs) How dare you split the vote? (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. Not really. Number four, Susan Sarandon for Atlantic City. What? Yep. All right. Number three, Miss Piggy for The Great Muppet Caper. Because I helped you there. (laughs) Number two, Catherine Hepburn for On Golden Pond. And number one, Diane Keaton for Reds. Oh. Hmm. 
she was great. No, I agree she was great, but I, everyone else I listed, I was like, oh, I love them just a little more. Like, mm-hmm. Diane Keaton would be my number six. Yeah, that is fair. I didn't, I, I, I was going to be cute and add Miss Piggy, but I was like, no, I already did the dog last, <laughs> last <laughs> episode. <laughs> I didn't think about that when I did want to that. address one thing I didn't. I noticed that there was like no POC for like any, not like I usually try yep. to seek it out, but there's like, this is all white. 1981 had such a white issue. Um, I'm yeah. pretty sure there was a whole issue with that, and I could not find anything. But Johnny Carson's Johnny Carson mentioned something at the beginning of his monologue about how uh, diverse Hollywood isn't. Right. It's, mm-hmm. it's. But he's like anybody who's an actor is a minority, and I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> all right. <laughs> yeah. It's. It was like shockingly like noticeable. So, yeah. yeah, I think the most nomination was probably for Ragtime Got Supporting Actor. And I didn't see Ragtime. And I didn't, yeah, either. I didn't either. Let me say his name, though, because I want to give him some credit here for being nominated for Ragtime. <gasps> Where the hell is it? <laughs> Howard E. Rollins Jr. Okay. Okay. Supporting Actor. Yeah, but yeah, it was. Like, most years you can, like, at least try to seek it out. But even this year, there just like was not much out there. Yeah, it definitely so. felt like us doing the 50s. Yeah. But anyway. Unfortunate. All right. Next we have best director. Zay, take us away. All right. Number five, even though he's a shitty man, uh, Herbert Ross for Pennies um, from Heaven. If you want more, Dolly Parton says a lot about him in her um, biography. Uh-oh. He did steal Magnolias. He tried to turn everyone on Julia Roberts. Oh. Yeah. Wow. And they were all like, no. They <laughs> loved each other. Anyway, uh, number four, Mark Rydell for On Golden Pond. Number three, I'm going to butcher the fuck out of this one, Andres... On, 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 Andres... <laughs> Zulowski for Possession. <laughs> Oh, wow. I, I should have looked that name up before I said it out loud. <laughs> Jim Henson for The Great Muppet Caper. And my win is for John Waters for Polyester. All right. So I have number five, Mark Rydell for On Golden Pond. John Waters at number four for Polyester. Terry Gilliam for Time Bandits at number three. Warren Beatty for Reds at number two. And Steven Spielberg for Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I'm oh. thinking that our podcast, this is the fourth win personally wow. for Spielberg for me. Also, yeah. this whole time I was like, why don't I know what Time Bandits is? And then you said Terry Gilliam and I'm like, oh, that movie. <laughs> now I know what movie you're talking about. Nice. All right, my number five is John Waters for Polyester. My number four is George Miller for Mad Max 2. Number three, Warren Beatty for Reds. Number two, Brian De Palma for Blowout. And number one is Steven Spielberg for Raiders of the Lost Ark. Also my fourth time giving him Best Director for this podcast. So, Oh, making me look like the bad guy for him. <laughs> <and Steve together. laughs> oh, wait. Wait, no, 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 no. No, no, this is my third time. Because Jaws and I'm Schindler or Jurassic, whichever, this, but I gave... Akira Kurosawa. Oh, no, I did too. Oh. You're right. I just remember that. 
You're right. I gave Color Purple best picture, but Kurosawa director. That's right. Three. With the little Spielberg conversation. I, I'm like, I've never nominated. <laughs> I don't think I nominated him for Color Purple either. No, I, I think I nominated him. Okay. All right. We have arrived at our top 10 of the year for best picture. So Zay, take us away. Number 10, Mommy Dearest. Number nine, Reds. Number eight, The Beyond. Uh, mentioned an Italian war film. Number seven, Pennies from Heaven. Number six, An American Werewolf in London. Number five, The Evil Dead. Number four, The Great Muppet Caper. Number three, Possession. Number two, Polyester. And number one, On Golden Pond. Ooh, all right. Uh, my number 10 is gonna be Mommy Dearest. Number nine, Pennies from Heaven. Coming in clutch at the last minute there. Number eight, Time Bandits. Number seven, Reds. Number six, Arthur. Number five, An American Werewolf in London. Number four, Polyester. Three is The Great Muppet Caper. Two is On Golden Pond. And number one is Raiders of the Lost Ark. All right. Y'all are probably going to hate this list. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you started out like that, you got us prepared. <laughs> My number 10 is Gallipoli. My number nine is Prince of the City. Number eight is Reds. Number seven, On Golden Pond. Number six, Polyester. Number five, The Evil Dead. Number four, Mad Max 2. Number three, Thief. Number two, Blowout. And number one, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Congrats, Steven. <laughs> I mean, the that was perfect. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, the list, your list has more of the things I didn't see. Right. There you go. That's like Spielberg's fourth best film win. Yeah, I didn't give it to him for Jaws. Oh, well, I did. So, my but third. But I don't think Raiders would have won, though. Because I didn't put it on my list. Yeah, it wasn't on your list. So it probably would have been, I don't know, we were all over the place. Polyester? Polyester was my number two, your number six. Or, or the Great Muppet. Wait, was the Great Muppet on your list? It wasn't on my list. No. On Golden Pond was my number two. It was my number one and your number seven. My number seven. So I think it would have been on Golden Pond. Probably on Golden Pond. Sorry, Which I'm cool with. I'm cool with on Golden Pond. That's fine. All right. But there you have it. Like we said last time, the Academy did not get it right. None of us put Chariots of Fire in our top 10. Not even Why would we? But um, yeah, on Golden Pond, a lot of good nominees that year and a lot of great movies that we saw otherwise. And so it's a good year. I thoroughly enjoyed this year. I did too. I really enjoyed watching these movies. Even the ones I wasn't too big on, there weren't a whole lot that I. I don't think there were any that I hated. So, but as always, thank you for listening. Um, you can always rate, review, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can find us basically anywhere you can find your podcast, as well as on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, and at gildedfilms.com. Thanks again to Joshua Arnoldi, sorry, for doing our theme music. And Zay, final thoughts from you? No. I'm, I'm brain dead. I'm tired of this. <laughs> I want to leave my home. Same. Um, but, you know, watch a good movie. Of course. Maybe one from 1981. There you go. Um, last thoughts for me. I just want to thank uh, the five people who have given us a rating on Apple. Because yeah. I just noticed that the other day. So thank you. Keep rating us, y'all. 
Yes. Thank you very much uh, for listening, rating us and tuning in every time we do these because they're a lot of fun and we really appreciate that you all take time to listen. So. And I'll be back for a future episode 1943. Yes. Said. Yes. Whenever that comes out. Casablanca. Casablanca. I'll be excited for that one. Coming up, we do have our next episode will be the 1962 Academy Awards where Lawrence of Arabia was the big winner. And so kind of like 1956, those are long movies, but we will cover them all. You'll hear from us then. We appreciate you listening now and we will talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.